Hello and welcome back to the Tough Take Podcast. I'm Zach Green. And I'm Luca DeLosta. In today's episode, we will talk a little bit about the proposed in-season NBA tournament, sitting down and having a talk with two-time Olympian Tori Nyhog, and then previewing the Monday night football game between the Minnesota Vikings and the Philadelphia Eagles. Let's get right into it. Starting with the proposed in-season NBA tournament, I mean, it's a weird concept, but it's coming from that WNBA Commissioner's Cup. Zach, why don't you talk a little bit about what it is, the proposal? So this could be as early as the 2023-2024 season. And one thing that, get out of the air now, that this in-season tournament is along with the 82 games that each team plays. So it it's already included, so they're not playing extra games in the regular season. So this is how the tournament would go, according to the Sham Sharina of The Athletic. Teams would play cup games through the month of November. The eight teams with the best records through these cup games would advance to a single elimination tournament in the month of December. The other 22 teams who don't make it to the cup would just continue the regular seasons as regular. And then the eight teams will play the single elimination tournament until there are two, two final teams for the final. And then the tournament game will be a part of the 83rd extra game. Have you talked about a little about that? So it's interesting that so there's only going to be two teams within the season that play an 83rd game. But it's smart, I think, that they implement it and keep it with the NBA season because otherwise the season would go on absolutely forever and the offseason would be probably a month, if not less. And then you also have to take into account, like, they've expanded that play-in tournament a little bit. It's now a little bit longer than it was when they first implemented it. And then the playoffs could go as late as, what, late June, middle June? The season would just go on forever if it wasn't for, if they didn't implement this with the 82 regular game season. And like you're saying, I completely agree. But one thing that wouldn't I wouldn't particularly like about it is you look at like in the December time, like that's when a lot of people are home and that's when the NBA gets a lot of views, Christmas Day games, wintertime games. I mean, those are just fun games to watch. This, and this would be a fun tournament to watch because uh, the stakes uh, with the money. So it would kick out of the way. We won't see it for another year or two if it gets passed through. But it, it's debatable that it could be an entertaining tournament to watch. I mean, Mark Cuban came out and said that he might, if they do this, might not play his like star players. So that's a big question I have is if they do this, how are they going to entice those star players and owners and managers of teams, head coaches, whatever, to play their star players. And that's where the money and the prize comes into play. And then I also saw something on this, and I forget where, that it could help with playoff seating and the team would get an automatic six-seed spot. I don't know if that's a reputable source. Maybe it could be. But if it had playoff implications, I'm sure that teams would take it a little more serious. And now it's just a question of will the NBA, like the NBA and the NBA PA, so the Players Association, come together and on this restructuring of the collective bargain that they have right now that goes through the 23-24 season. So with the collective bargain they have right now, which includes salary, which is why it's in question, they have to agree on opting out of that by December 15th of this year, and then they could probably implement this 
tournament by the 2023-24 season. And now we would like to welcome to the show two-time Olympic BMX racer Tori Nyhog. Tori, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks, guys, for having me on today. It totally. It's. I mean, we are so grateful that you are able to come onto the show with us. We get to sit down and have a little conversation with you. And firstly, let's just. Could you explain to us a little bit of your story as a BMX racer? Yeah, definitely. So I started riding a bike when I was two and a half years old. Actually, could do it at a really young age. My uncle knew about a local track where I grew up just outside Vancouver, BC, Canada. Um, so I went and tried it when I was about four years old. Uh, loved it instantly. Such a such a fun and cool sport. And then from then, I, I started racing in Canada, won, um, won some national championships. And then I started traveling to the U.S. Uh, to race a bit more in the, in the national series down here as the competition's way, way stronger and the field's are really deep. And that's a, it's a good way to progress as a BMX racer. So started doing that some more. Um, and then I went to many world championships growing up as a kid too. I think the first world championships I went to was in Louisville, Kentucky, and I was, would have been nine. Um, got fourth of the world championships when I was nine years old. And then I think from that point on, like my parents kind of figured, oh, wow, he's got some, he's got some good potential in the sport. And then ended up winning another, um, four world championships growing up as an amateur, um, turned pro when I was, 17 i believe um and then continued on to have a pro career went to a couple olympic games and raced the world cup circuit around the world and uh retired when i was uh I believe 27 so it's kind of the the quick quick version of my career in a nutshell that is a very successful quick career <laughs> um what made you start competing in bmx racing at the age of four good question initially i i just loved riding my bike um so that was something that I just really, really like to do every day. And so going to the track, I just really enjoyed it. But I think for me, especially in BMX racing, it's so head to head, you're against seven other people and it's just about who can go the fastest. So for me, what I really loved about the sport and, and racing was just the pure competition of it. Um, and just trying to beat the person next to me. That's what really got me fired up every day. And to add on to that, uh, were there any other sports you played growing up? Yeah, I actually played quite a few sports growing up. I played high-level hockey till I was 17 or 18. Um, played indoor lacrosse as well. And then I played a bit of soccer when I was a kid. Uh, but yeah, played played hockey till I was uh, graduating high school. So uh, were there, was any of those sports, like the components of those sports, did they help you any in your BMX racing uh, career? I think different aspects, probably. Yeah, definitely hockey, learn to play with others and learn to work as a team, which is beneficial for many different things. Um, fairly similar, like short explosive sport, just like BMX and, and good for overall fitness. So I think hockey really helped with that. Yeah. And of course, hockey was definitely Canadian sport. So I'm sure that's some of the influence. <laughs> yeah, definitely. What was the feeling when you first found out that you would be representing your home team in 2015 at the Pan, Ameri Pan American Games. Yeah, that was that was really cool. It had been highlighted on my calendar for for a while. Um I actually broke my foot really badly the winter before at the end of 2014 and in November we were racing in Tulsa Thanksgiving and I broke my ankle really bad in four places and ended up having to have it reconstructed. So I was going to be off the bike for like 
yeah, four to six months and I wasn't gonna be able to walk for three months. So I, I didn't know if I was going to be a hundred percent by the time the Pan Am games came around, but I knew I really wanted to come back and not only race it, but medal, especially with Pan Am games being at home in Canada, it's once in a lifetime opportunity. So by the time the Pan Am games rolled around, I'd only been back racing for about a month or so. Um, but I knew right away, as soon as I got there and started riding that I was really feeling it and I was going fast. And even though I wasn't completely healthy, I, I still felt like I was flying. So to be able to race, to be able to race that event at home and win a gold medal in front of home crowd was definitely one of the highlights of my life and career. And to add on to that, another question we had, well, is that your biggest drawback of your career? Do you mean biggest accomplishment? Like, draw, or, like drawback or like setback? Oh yeah. The broken foot you mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely one of them. That's probably the longest injury I was off and I had to come back from. And that was tough because at the time it was, they had to put six screws in my foot. And even today I still have six screws in my foot and they weren't sure if I was going to get full range of motion back or if I'd be able to be able to train at the same level because off the bike, we do a lot of, you know, heavy lifting in the gym, plyometrics, that kind of stuff, which is obviously high impact and a lot of, a lot of strain on, on your foot and your joints. So when the Pan Ams came around, I still wasn't back doing everything in the gym, but it probably took me, probably took me 15 months from the, from the injury to feel like I was back to fully hundred percent. Um, and I had actually, that was the year before the Olympics in Rio in 2016. So I kind of come to terms with the fact myself, like, you know, you might not get back to what you were, but you can still be, still be really good and just go there and do your best. But I actually ended up getting back to what I felt like was a hundred percent and even better than I was before. And it's, it's incredible that you were able to win the gold at the Pan American games. When you said you were only coming up, you only rode for about a month before, but something I'm very curious about is what is it like to compete in the Olympics as you did twice? Yeah, it's a good question. The Olympics are, um, they're, they're interesting. Like the, when I went to London in 2012, I was just a kid and I was coming, <laughs> I was coming back from pretty bad injury then actually I had my spleen taken out like, a, I think five weeks, six weeks before something crazy, um, ruptured my spleen, ended up having taken out. So I wasn't at hundred percent there. Anyway, I ended up going to the Olympics and did my best, but, um, didn't make the final. It was a really good experience, but it felt like it happened really quickly. And so after going to London in 2012 and then the Pan Am Games in 2015, going to Rio, I just really wanted to go there healthy in the best shape I could be in and just really enjoy the whole experience because that's really all you can ask at the Olympics is you just go there healthy with a shot. Um, so the cool thing about the Olympics is being in the athlete village, you see athletes that you've seen on TV and other sports. You see Usain Bolt or people like that, which is really cool. Michael Phelps, all those guys. And then when you get to the track, like everything around the Olympics is way bigger. So you do a ton of media. I mean, there's the, there's so many people watching. BMX is like one of the first things to sell out at the Summer Olympics, which is pretty cool. Um, but then once you, once you kind of accept and deal with all that and all the extra stuff, like once I actually got to practice and racing, it just felt like another World Cup or something that we were racing. It didn't feel like we obviously knew it was the Olympics. And especially on the second day when semifinals and final came around, like everyone knows what's on the line, but... I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was more nervous for that than I would be a world championships or something. Initially, yes, because it's bigger, but then once you get it, kind of get into your routine and get going, it kind of just feels like a, another race. 
that's really cool that even playing in something like the Olympics, it can feel kind of normal like you've done before. Why did you choose to start coaching BMX racing to the younger up-and-coming generation? Good question. So after I retired, I wasn't sure what I what I wanted to do. I was doing some TV work at the at the World Cup races with BMX Live TV and doing rider interviews and did some color commentary for the World Championships, and I really liked that. Um, I also had some time coaching some riders in, in that period as well, and I really liked it. Felt it was really fulfilling for me. It's not something I did really at all when I was racing, just because I was so focused on what I was doing. I I comes in my own world of always trying to improve so then when I took a step back and started coaching at some of the tracks and some tracks across Canada and and working with different riders I found it was really fulfilling seeing how happy they were when they could improve so I just wanted to expand on that um, and I feel like I I have so much knowledge of riding and racing throughout my experiences that it's almost a it's almost a waste and I'll hand it back to the next group of riders coming up so I'm, I'm thankful that I can do it for a living and also really help people in the sport. And you, you expressed your expanded knowledge on the sport, but I was reading through your website and you said you got a sports science diploma. Could you explain a little bit the value that that gives you as a BMX racing coach? Yeah, definitely. Because there's the, obviously the sports specific side and the scientific side. So for me, I was um, really interested in the scientific side in school. So I, I studied sports science and, and learned how, how the body works and different energy systems and how to train muscles in different ways and that kind of thing. So pairing that with my knowledge of the sport, I think really helped, helped me personally, not only add something else to, to training, but differ myself from, from other people. And it's something that I, I really enjoy researching. That's really cool. That's something I never knew about until now. Um, are there any up-and-coming riders that you see and go, wow, that person is the next Olympic gold medalist? Good question. It's, it's so hard to tell at a young age, but certainly we have a handful of riders in Canada, and there's, there's, a, there's many riders here in the U.S. too that have extraordinary talent and have won amateur age group titles, and I'm really excited to, to see them progress up through the ranks. It's always, it's really interesting to watch a rider from kind of that 14 to 16 year old range when they're, when they're winning their age group in the US or at the world championships and then progress into junior and then elite. It's, it's cool to see how they adapt to it because once you get to elite, the classes are so deep and it's so hard that if not everyone's made up for it, to be honest, like it's, you're going to get beat down and it's going to be mentally really tough. But I think the riders that are able to accept the challenge and really rise to it and are really tough mentally are the ones that are going to make it. And I feel like that's very evident in many sports. It comes down to everybody is really talented athletically, but it comes down to who has that mental toughness. So it's very interesting to hear from a coach their, their perspective on mental toughness. But I, I want to ask, like, how do you tell these kids when like the, the um, possibility that there is to have a serious injury and go through these beatdowns and drawbacks that you went through as a racer. Yeah, definitely in our sport with it being such an action sport and extreme sport, there are some, there are some horrific injuries. And I know some, some phenomenal riders that I grew up riding and racing with that have had permanent long-term injuries that it's, you know, it's really sad. Um, injuries do happen in every sport for sure. 
the likelihood of our sport is higher than than many sports but I think if you love doing it and you know it, it gives you a rush and you know even better if you can make a living at it I I personally always thought it was worth it for myself and you know if I have a rider that gets hurt or, or asks about it it's just like well you know every time you go on the track you accept the risk that you could crash and get an injury and it's just the unfortunate reality of our sport and that's something I had to accept every time I got on the track too like I could crash and get hurt it could just be a Tuesday morning at the same track I ride all the time and you could have a bad crash and be in the hospital but you do the best you can to avoid that like we're as safe as possible if it's really windy we might not jump certain jumps or we might tailor track sessions to to try and avoid that but unfortunately it's it's not a matter of if you're going to crash it's when but we certainly do our best to minimize it and and you know mitigate the risk and then going back to the younger generation kids kind of thing what advice would you give to kids that want to be doing what you are currently i think follow your follow your passion it's not always it's not always the most talented rider that does the best often it's just the person that will go through a brick wall to make it happen you can the door's often not going to open right away, but if you keep beating the door down, it, it likely is. If you're, if you're talented and you work hard and you surround yourself with good people and you're single-mindedly focused, you can, you can make it work and you can have a good living and, and career in BMX or whatever sport or, or business you go into. Nothing comes easy in, in life, really. Like if you want to, if you want to make things happen, you have to make it happen for yourself. And there's, there's always going to be people saying like, you can't do it or, you know, it's dumb, you should get a regular job or whatever. But if you, if you really dedicate yourself to it, you can make it happen. And I think that the athletes, especially in individual sports, because there's no one to bail you out, like the athletes that make it an individual sports, I think are, are really special people. Wow. I mean, I was going to ask another question, but I, I have to leave it off on that. I mean, that was the best way you could have closed it out with some motivational words for the people who are up and coming and doing what you want to do so i guess with that we'd just like to thank you tori for coming on to the show with us for this quick little chat i'm very thankful i know zach is as well yes thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to us yeah my pleasure boys great questions it was fun chatting i'm happy to come back come back on anytime oh wait and before he leaves i would just like to give him a shout out he has a podcast as well believe it's called coffee chatter yeah you got that right yeah it's so, coffee BMX, chatter go check it out yeah bmx podcast we interview different riders and, and people in the industry and also talk about uh yeah different races and events going on in the bmx world and with that we would like to say thank you thanks guys now let's jump into the monday night football matchup between the minnesota vikings and philadelphia eagles this game is, honestly, I have it as my game of the week. We'll get to that later, but it's also interesting because it's one of two Monday night football games this week, but it should be, I mean, NFC, two NFC teams going at it and two teams that have shown a lot of potential so far in the week one games. So let's start off with the Vikings. Both teams coming into a great game last week, both teams coming out with wins. The Vikings with a little more dominant fashion. The Eagles barely escaping Dan Campbell and the Lions, but we'll get to that later. So let's start with the Vikings. First game under Kevin O'Connell as their head coach, and it was definitely a good one. Starting with Kirk Cousins, 23 for 32, 277 yards and two touchdowns. He also didn't see that much pressure, only getting one sack for eight yards. 
Kirk Cousins allowing him to have that time in the pocket allowed Justin Jefferson to absolutely facilitate down the field. But they dominated a Packers team who they've struggled with from the years past because Aaron Rodgers had Devontae Adams, and Devontae Adams gone. Aaron Rodgers had nobody to throw to. So speaking of that Vikings pass rush with Zadarius Smith now on the Vikings, he had a great game yesterday. But with the Vikings O-line, it gave many opportunities to Dalvin Cook and Alexander Madison. Dalvin Cook, 20 carries for 90 yards. Alexander Madison, 8 carries for 36 yards. And that both averaged to both of them going for 4.5 yards a carry, which is very strong. But like you said, the main target of this game was Justin Jefferson, Jay Jettas. Nine catches, 184 yards, which is more. About 70% of Kirk Cousins' yards. He only had 93 yards to other receivers. So he 20.4 yards a catch, two touchdowns, one being a 64-yarder. Luke, I know this did not help you in fantasy football. Jay Jett has absolutely just torched my team. I mean, obviously, who I was going with somehow, with all the pick trading we had in our league, ended up with Cooper Cup and Justin Jefferson. Cooper Cup had, I want to say, 20 at half, and Jay Jett has had, like, 25, 30 at half. So I was really in the bin fantasy-wise, but Jay Jettas, I mean, a lot of people predicted him to be their offensive player of the year going into this season, and if he plays like he did in that week one matchup, he very easily could, and I look like a fool last week saying that that Packers secondary was probably one of the best, if not the best. So, I mean, like you did say that, that kind of came back and haunted you. That was a big, tough take on your part. But like I said, the 93 yards for Kirk Cousins to other receivers— Thielen had 36 of them, three catches for 36 yards. Good to see him back healthy. I think he'll probably get a little more involved as the week goes on and teams play more attention on Justin Jefferson. But now switching over to the defensive side of the Vikings, Harrison Smith had the team's only interception, picking off Rodgers, who had a completely utter bad game. That was just not a good game. But small thing about the Packers, I'm not really worried about them. They're not going to be as good as they were last year. I was looking at it. They lost their first game last year when they only put up three points to the Saints, and they came back and won seven in a row. That's what I was thinking. Everybody was on Rodgers' head last year because he was coming off an MVP season and started that first week absolutely horrendously, and that's when they had Devontae Adams. So I'm, again, with you. I don't, I'm not worried about this Packers team. They have great coaching, and they have Aaron Rodgers' back-to-back MVP. They're a good team, and they're always going to be contenders. But for the Minnesota defensive part, Minnesota got to Aaron Rodgers four times, Jordan Hicks, Daniel Hunter, Zadarius Smith, old friend, and DJ Wanham. So with this Eagles O-line being one of the best in football, that'll be a very good matchup to see. Shifting it over to the Eagles side, who, as you said, they escaped Dan Campbell and the Lions, but I think the game was not as close as the scoreboard would say. They were up by two possessions most of the game. And Jalen Hurts had a field day running-wise and passing-wise. I mean, he ran for 90 yards, I believe, on 17 attempts. And he passed 18 for 32, 243 yards. No passing TD or INT but and got sacked once. But I think a big factor was A.J. Brown. So talk about that with A.J. Brown. He almost had a touchdown, about 55 yards. It would have been a bomb. He got stopped short. But still, the rushing attack for the Eagles, too, they had... Everyone who rushed the ball for the Eagles on the stat line scored. So let's go down the list. Miles Sanders, 13 carries, 96 yards, 7.4 average, which is amazing for a touchdown. 
Jalen Hurts, 17 carries, 90 yards. That's 5.3 average. Touchdown. Kenneth Gainwell, 5 carries, 20 yards. That's 4 average. A touchdown. Then finally, Boston Scott, 4 carries, 10 yards, 2.5 a carry, and a touchdown. So this rushing offense as a whole is very, very strong. And it was, I mean, they always have a, a decent running back room. They won't have that, like, Derrick Henry, Dalvin Cook type of guy in the room, but they have all these guys who can run the ball. And so much for Miles Sanders saying, don't pick me up in fantasy. I mean, he goes and runs for almost 100 yards and a touchdown. That's enough fantasy points to do you good in one week. We'll see how he progresses throughout the year. So like you said for A.J. Brown, I mean, 10 catches, 155 yards in his opening as an Eagle. I mean, Eagles fans could not be happier. And A.J. Brown fantasy owners can't be happier. I mean, I had him, yet I lost, but he has a lot of upside, especially this year. And then Dallas Goddard, three catches for 60 yards. He's a very good pass catcher. And talking about fantasy, definitely a reliable fantasy target. Devontae Smith, Heisman winner 2020. Four targets, zero catches. It's his first game not being the wide receiver one in Philadelphia. I mean, he was wide receiver one last year. A.J. Brown comes in and absolutely steals the show. But Devonta Smith is not a guy, I think, who in the NFL has those big, loud games. He will have a game where he goes crazy, and then he'll have a game where he kind of calms down. I'm not worried. Devonta Smith won the Heisman for a reason. So let's shift over to the Philadelphia side of the defense. Their run defense last week did not look too good. Three touchdowns on 26 carries, 172 yards, which is 6.6 yards a run. And now you're going up with a running back in Dalvin Cook and Alexander Madison. This is something that the Vikings will most likely exploit. Definitely, especially with, I mean, the Eagles secondary improving and now with James Bradbury, who... Now we're going to get to see some Darius Slay on Jay Jettas, which could be also a very good matchup. But I, I'm with you. I think that if the pass game doesn't go as planned and they're in a tight game, the reason the Eagles might lose this game is because the Vikings will exploit the run defense of the Eagles. And then talk about James Bradbury. He had a pick six in his first game as an Eagle. He only had two tackles, I think one solo. So look for him to move around a lot. You could see him of some of him on Jay Jettas as well. Adam Thielen will definitely be lined up versus Bradbury a lot. But that'll be a key matchup to watch. That should be a fun one. I just like this matchup as a whole. I think that it's two very, very solid teams going into this year. Two teams that could easily take the NFC. And we get to see it week two, Monday Night Football. The other Monday Night Football game will be the Bills and the Titans. Titans, which should be a great game to watch. I mean, I don't know what's going to go on there. I mean, the, if the Bills play like they did against the Rams, it wasn't all good, but it was mostly good. They're obviously the favorite to win the Super Bowl this year. Josh Allen looks like the guy, and the Titans, they lost to, to a very poor Giants team. Yes, Saquon had a really good game, but that Giants team is just not good. Let's shift over into our games and matches of the week. My game of the week might come as a surprise to some people, but I actually have the Commanders versus the Lions. Believe it or not, the Lions and the Commanders have the third highest over-under coming into Sunday at 48.5. So for those of you who don't know what over-under is, that is the total points combined in the game by both teams. The Lions showed a lot in the loss to Philly, and Washington doesn't look that bad. So this should be a fun game to watch. That's definitely a game to watch because... 
Washington looked good in that first game, and then the Lions also looked good despite a loss. But my game of the week is that Vikings-Eagles Monday night game. You could also look out for that 425 Bengals-Cowboys game. It's going to be a good game. But yeah, my matchup or the game of the week, Vikings-Eagles. And glad you talked about the Bengals-Cowboys because my match, my matchup of the week is the wide receiver cornerback matchup, Jamar Chase versus Trayvon Diggs. Chase with the big play factor and Diggs being the risk taker and gambler he is. You know, he gives up a lot of yards but sometimes gets rewarded with pick sixes and interceptions, who will prevail? And a key note, Chase will see a lot more targets if T. Higgins doesn't play due to a concussion last week versus Steelers. All signs right now look like he's going to play. He mispracticed on Thursday for a personal matter, which was his father's funeral, so prayers out to him. That wasn't for the concussion, but I think this should be a great matchup. Definitely one to look out for. My matchup of the week is the other Monday night game. It's Derrick Henry versus that Bills rush defense who last year was in top 50% for rush defenses and allowed the fewest rush yards in week one. Yes, they were up by a lot, so LA was not running the ball, but it should be a key matchup to watch. Derrick Henry is definitely due for a big game. So with that, I mean, it's been Luca DeLosta and Zachary Green. Thank you for listening.